Good evening. It's good to see all of you. Um, thanks for being here with us tonight. Um, I just wanted to, to make a few comments about some things that we have for you, some things that we're going to do. Um, one is, if you didn't see it out here on the list, uh, on the uh, list, this is a list, out here on the uh, podium, whatever that thing is out there, um, there's a sheet of paper. It's got a list of resources for you. Um, that you can do some of your own homework, and we would encourage you to do that. Uh, if, if you read all of these things that are listed in here, you get no prize, but you deserve one. It's a lot of, lot of things, a um, lot of uh, websites. There's a podcast or two, a video. Um, there's some uh, mini books. I, you, I read through a couple of these within half hour. You can just click through it. In two bucks for the Kindle version on Amazon and read it online. It's they're really accessible. Um, I did forget to put one resource on here, and I'll mention it when I come up here and talk. Um, helping me tonight is uh, Alex Sossler back here. This fine-looking man back here. Um, he is a professor in the Bible department at Montreal College. He is also. Um, can I say where you are as a? Church, why? Okay. Uh, he is uh, pursuing ordination uh, in the Anglican Church of North America. Uh, he is a Redeemer in West Asheville. He went to seminary at Southern Seminary uh, and did his doctorate there as well. Uh, if you don't know, that means he used to be a Baptist, and the Lord has delivered him and convinced him of things chief amongst which that little children do get to come to Jesus. So that's great. We are very happy for him. Um, the, I'm actually, it's, uh, it's only helpful to me that he's in the Anglican Church because the ACNA uh, is very similar to the EPC in terms of ethos, specifically on this issue of women's ordination, um, where they too have said, we are not going to divide over the issue of women's, they call it women's orders. Um, the majority of, you can correct me if I'm wrong, the majority of dioceses, which is their organizational system, the majority of dioceses in the Anglican Church of North America uh, do not ordain women, but the majority of people within the Anglican Church of North America live within dioceses that do ordain women. Is that right? So they have a very diverse, and if you lost me, it's just, I'm just saying there's diverse positions within their church as well as ours. Um, so I, I wanted to also explain to you where we're coming from in the EPC. Um, for us, I, I, at the very top of this resource list, I put a link to the EPC's position paper on women's ordination. Um, and what we have said in our denomination as a people is that there are certain things that are non-negotiable and essential that are fundamental to being Christian. And if you're going to have viable Christian churches, these things have to be present. And women's ordination is not one of those things. So in other words, uh, you can be a good Christian church and in good order and ordain women or not ordain women. You cannot be a Christian church and in good order and not teach Trinitarian theology. And so because of that, we've said we're not going to divide over this. We're going to stay together and be on mission to serve Jesus. Um, However, that doesn't mean that we're saying women's ordination is not important. It is important. It's just not essential. So we, as a family of churches, have said openly, 
We disagree about this, but we are not going to persist in fighting to the extent that we divide from one another. We're better off together, staying together as a body. That has looked different in the EPC. Most churches end up breaking out, like this is in uh, what we call egalitarian church or a complementarian church. In our church, we've kind of been both all together and fused and not really sure how to do this together. But this is our framework. This is, this is our common understanding of how we believe as an EPC people. Um, so what we're going to do tonight is uh, present to you different sides of this uh, way of thinking. Uh, Alex and I are going to come eventually uh, at one text. There's a bunch of them, but we're only going to spend really sim- significant amount of time with one, although we'll mention others, just to help ground the conversation. What we want you to see is uh, he and I, even though we're not in the same denomination, we are joined together in love for Jesus and in submission to the scriptures. We both have very high view of, of the scriptures. He would affirm what I would affirm about the scriptures. And what we hope you see is this is not the case of he holds his position, which we call complementarian, because he hates women and thinks they're dumb. And I don't hold my position because it's just not fair and things need to be fair. And therefore, this is why I believe this. Both of us are coming to our position because we believe in the authority of scripture to dictate to us what should be. Uh, And we just happen to interpret differently and come to honest disagreement on these things. So we hope that this process will show that to you. And maybe you're here and you know what you think. Great. We hope this helps you think better. Maybe you don't know what other people think. Great. We hope you learn what that is. And we hope this becomes a way for us to talk going forward. So um, one other thing, we might use the language of complementarian, egalitarian. We know those terms bother people. They're annoying to both of us, I would think. I also think that men and women complement one another, but I am egalitarian. He also thinks men and women are equal in quality of being, but he's not egalitarian. I am. It's, the terms are weird, but this is just how it is. This is where we are, and these are the terms we'll use. So if you get lost, just put your hand up at some point. We'll have no, did I tell you about the note cards? Okay, we're, have you passed them out? You're going to pass out, we're going to pass out note cards. When we're done talking, we're going to break. Um, you can write down questions that you have. We will answer them. Uh, myself and the elders will be up front. We'll try to get to them all. Um, we may not be able to get to them all. And if um, we're trying to be respect, respectful of people's time. So if we didn't get to your question, I'm sorry. We can have a conversation, you and I, and uh, figure that out together. So... Um, That's where we're going. Ultimately, you see the table in front of you. We'd like to conclude tonight by having communion together because it is in Jesus' work that we are one, not in our complete agreement with one another. All right. Um, Alex is going to come and talk for 15-ish minutes. I'll come talk roughly the same amount of time. And then uh, he will... uh, I can't remember. We'll respond to each other uh, and possibly ask questions and make comments on what each other has said and then also conclude by uh, just laying out before you what are some of the challenges uh, that we see in each other's position and the challenge that we see in our own position. Uh, Let me pray and we'll get started. (laughs) 
Lord Jesus, you are the great shepherd of the sheep. You are the head of the flock, the head of the church, the bridegroom. You have purchased your people with your own blood. And you've made a way for us to be with you forever, seated in the divine life. We're so grateful for that, Lord Jesus. Thank you that your word speaks to us. And Father, we ask that you'd give us ears to hear, that our eyes would be open to see. Help us to understand your word. Help us to understand one another. And Father, I pray that you would knit us together in love for you and love for one another. That we would be blessed to be in community with one another. And that we would be a blessing to the world as you call all people to you as the great hope of the nations. Use us, God. Use our mouth. Use our minds. Use our ears. To the glory of your name. Amen. Alex is going to come talk first because he's a guest. Um, we're recording this, so we're going to switch this microphone back and forth. And sorry about any audio difficulties. Hello, people who are not here and are listening. We love you. Also, you should have come. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, it's such a joy to be with you. I was a pastor in Austin when I, where we came from, and I was a Baptist pastor at that, as he mentioned. So now I'm Anglican, so I'm, I'm in the mood to change my mind. So maybe tonight, you know, I'll, I'll go egalitarian. But joining the academia world was always in an effort to better serve the local church. So this is what I love to do, and I love to see local churches flourish. And so thanks so much for having me. I want to start with a few confessions. First one, when I came for an interview at Montreat College, I stopped and had dinner at Foothills, right, right down downtown Black Mountain. And I saw an office building that said, Eyesight Church. I don't know if I've ever told you this. Okay. And I thought, what kind of dweeb names their church Eyesight? And do they pay like royalties to Apple? I don't, like, how does this work? And so I looked, I, I remember being on my phone and thinking, like, who is this? And it was Anthony Rodriguez, who went to Montreal College, and I was like, oh, gosh, there's a lot that needs to change. But now knowing Valley Hope and knowing your pastor, I can say uh, I love him, and I love those of you I know in this church and your witness in the community, um, and so I'm glad you changed your name, and, uh, and here we are. <laughs> Second one. Second confession, complementarianism has often been an excuse for bigotry, sexism, and patriarchy. So those have been the prevailing dominant male domineering ways of being, and I think it's often we've used the Bible to support bigotry and sexism in those ways. I think that's been a historical theme that we ought to repent of if you come from a complementarian perspective. Last one. Complementarians have done a good job at saying no and a poor job at saying yes. So what I mean by that is that we're good with setting limits. No, you can't do that. But we haven't necessarily done a good job at this is, this, these are the ways that we want to see you flourish in the church and in ministry. So when you say, I feel called to ministry, we ought to say yes 
And we ought to provide all the opportunities for women to succeed and to flourish in ministry and in their homes and in their families. Those are my three confessions. Now, into the text. So we're going to camp out in 1 Timothy 2. However, we can't just go to 1 Timothy 2 and think we'll get all the perspective we need. So I want to start in the creation story and hopefully not go through all the Bible, but at least start there because I think all gender texts are going to be go back to the creation narrative. So if you remember in the creation story, God starts creating things. It's good. It's good. It's good. It's very good. It's not good. Right? The first not good comes at the aloneness of man. And so he needs a helper. So how does he find this helper? There's a parade of animals that passes before him. Right? It's not in the text, but I think it's our logical deduction from that is that each animal pair, as he's naming them, each animal pair passes by and there's compliments. There's a male and a female. And he's saying, I don't have a helper like that. I don't have a gendered partner. I don't have somebody with me in this mission to guard and to keep the garden. And so then... Adam goes in a deep sleep, the rib comes out of Adam, and breath is breathed into this new life, and it becomes woman. Right? There's a commentary by, I think, Matthew Henry says, it, it's, he, he, God takes the rib out of man, not the head to rule over, not the feet to be trampled under, but something to the side of him, something, a, help, a true helper, a true equal status guarding the sacred internal organs, kind of this, this sacredness that he takes and makes woman. And then Genesis 2 ends that they are naked and unashamed in the garden. Right? What I want to kind of draw out here is the naming, what names mean in the Old Testament and in the Hebrew narrative. Names tell us something about their identity and their vocation their hopes, and their expectations. So why is Adam named Adam? Why is Eve named Eve? <clears throat> Adam is named Adam is because he's taken from the ground. right? So he's taken from the dust of the ground, and he's formed into a human being. And the Hebrew word for ground is Adamah. Right? So Adam is taken from the ground, and that tells us something about his vocation and his identity, who he is and what he's meant to do. Namely, to guard and to keep. That that was the mission for Adam, is to guard and to keep. And that was this external vocation in the garden, working, keeping, tending. Eve has kind of two names. The first one is it's taken from man, so she shall be called woman. And the second one at the end of Genesis 3 is Eve, because she will be the mother of all living things. That tells us something about her identity and her vocation, namely that it's to nurture and to give life. If Eve is the mother of all living things and she's taken from man, that that says something about her identity and her vocation. And if you go to the curses in Genesis, what's cursed? For Adam, it's an external function. His work, his identity, his vocation is cursed. Of the, 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 thorn, the weeds will bear thorns and thistles. That work will be difficult. That his identity will be difficult. That his vocation will be difficult. 
And both, the two things that are cursed for a woman is your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. There's a, there's a conflict between relations there, and as well as there will be pain in childbirth, something about her identity and her vocation. I don't think those are just mishaps. I don't think they're just random curses. I think it's, it's something about their identity and their vocation. This thing that they were named, that they were meant to live into, is now broken. So they were naked and ashamed at the end of Genesis, at the end of Genesis 1, I guess, the create, when they're created. They're, they're seeing their identity, they're seeing their vocation, and they're unashamed. They're happy with it. But as soon as they sin in Genesis 3, they hide and they make coverings for themselves. Because now their naming, their purposes, their vocation, their, their nakedness is no longer, it's now a thing to hide. So even if, just for a moment, you think about a naked man and a naked woman, just quickly and then get out of your head, right? <laughs> one has an external function, and one has a receiving, nurturing, internal function, right? And so again, I think this is saying something about who they are and who they're created to be. Now, does that mean, so don't, don't read into what I'm saying. Right? So what I'm not saying is that the guy should go out and work 40 hours a week and the woman should be at home making sandwiches and taking care of the kids. Right? That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that there is, a, there is a, a natural, I think, a natural tendency, a natural norm for women to be more nurturing and for men to be more external, guarding and keeping and caring and leading. Not, redemptive norms. Not in every case, but that's the redemptive norm. And so if you think about even the world we live in, why is it that women are more prone to nursing and to teaching? I don't, like, if a woman wants to pursue STEM research and be, and, and do mathematics, I'm not saying like, oh, you can't because you're a woman, but I'm saying there's numbers and disparity, and I'm not necessarily, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think nursing and teaching are more nurturing careers that they're, they're more prone to. Right? I don't think there's an equality that needs to be in all vocations. Right? First Timothy. So we have something, a redemptive norm that male, created males are to guard and to keep. Redemptive norm. We have a redemptive norm that women are to give life and to nurture. <coughs> and then we come to 1 Timothy 2. There's lots of same-sex or yeah, same-sex sanctification, right? Pray at all times without ceasing. Flee sexual immorality. Bear fruits of the spirit. Whether you're a man or a woman, they're the same, right? But here in 1 Timothy 2, we have what I'll call um, different sex sanctification. That men and women are directed differently towards their sanctification, towards their growth and holiness. Here is what it says in verse 8. A desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. First instruction to man. Don't get angry when you pray. Right? Why is Paul writing into that situation to say, why is, why is anger the thing? And why is anger specifically in praying? Right? So I think there's something here that all of this passage is in the church order, Right? 1 Timothy, Timothy is a letter to the church, to church leaders, to church pastors, saying this is orderly, proper conduct in the church, in your church services, right? So is it, is it because women aren't supposed to pray? 
think the rest of Scripture would say, no, women are supposed to pray. Why is it here men pray without quarreling? From an Anglican tradition, there's a liturgical argument, which could be too papist for our time here. So I'm just going to jump into um, the, the special tendencies and the redemptive norms, right? So if men are meant to guard and to keep, or I'll say protect and provide, if that's the redemptive norm, the way that gets mixed up is in two ways. One is here in quarreling, kind of a hyper-masculinity. So they, they provide and protect, not for the other, but for themselves. Right? So if you offend me, I'm protecting and providing for me, and you're the one who needs to be um, chastised, domineered, be angry at because you're hurting me. But if Christ is our redemptive norm, we can see this, that he doesn't provide or protect for himself, that he had plenty of opportunities to take care of himself, but he for, continually forego, forwent them to provide and protect for others. He doesn't domineer, but he's also not passive. He also doesn't abscind his responsibility, because that's the other redemptive norm, protect and provide. The one way is to say, I'm going to protect and provide just for myself. I'm going to be kind of a macho man. The other one is to just be passive. Right? I don't want that responsibility. It's not for me. That's too hard. I can let others do it. Right? So there's a passivity, and there's a hypermasculinity. But the redemptive norm, I'm going to say, is to always protect and provide for the other. In the church, and in the home, and in our workplaces, and in our neighborhoods, that that's what men are meant to do, provide and protect others, to guard and to keep, like in the garden, right? And it ought not to be ever turned in. For women, there's a bit more instruction. And there's, I can't get into every case, if you have questions about what this means from a complementary perspective, for some of these details, happy to take those in Q&A, Q or you can save the hard ones for your elders. Verse 9, likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a wor woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness and self-control. Lots of uncomfortable things, even for me in there, right? <clears throat> but kind of back to, if this is the redemptive norm, to nurture and to give life, what are the ways that, that women can err in that? The first one is not to nurture and to care for others, but to nurture and to care for self, to adorn themselves with braided hair and with jewelry, to only kind of view themselves in terms of sexual appeal, right? to be attractive. And that, that's a nurturing to the self. Right? But women are also called, just as there's a protecting and providing redemptive norm to men, women are to nurture and to give life for others, right? not just themselves. The second way is to see um, themselves as perhaps less than a man. And perhaps this is more in the, in the context of a complementarian tendency that, oh, I'm not good enough, I can't lead, I'm not equipped enough, I'm not um, 
qualified enough to do these things. And the, 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 the problem with that is Genesis, right, being created equal but distinct. But the problem is not submission. The problem is undue submission, submitting to the wrong authorities. Because women are not to submit to men in general, right? Women are not to submit to men in culture or just men generally, but to specific callings, right? The reason that Eve, that the first sin happened was that she submitted to the wrong authority. She submitted to the serpent rather than to, to God and Adam's failure to communicate, to take the teaching and to pass it on to Eve well, right? So I think that there's some deception stuff that Eve was deceived first, which is to say Eve didn't sin outrightly because she didn't know, because Adam failed to pass it on, and the first sin was really Adam, but Adam didn't get deceived. He knew better. Eve perhaps didn't. Some of the, the context there. So redemptive norm, nurturing to give life. One way to err from that redemptive norm is to just nurture the self. The other way is to submit in general to view yourself as less than a man. And the other one is to usurp man's role. Kind of coming back to this Genesis, your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. That, they, that there's, a, there's a, I need to do this because, you know, if I'm being honest, sometimes men are stupid. Right? Can we throw that out there? And sometimes your, I'll say this, if all submission means is I'll submit as long as I agree with you, then you're not truly submitting to anyone else but yourself. And that's for me as an Anglican church member. If I say, I'm Anglican as long as you teach what I like. Or my marriage, I'll lead you as long as you, I'll mutually submit to you, Ephesians 5.1, I'll lead you as long as you make me happy. Right? There need, if you just submit to what you like, you're not, submit, you're not truly submitting. Right? There will be times where you think the church is going in a wrong way, your marriage is going in a wrong way, that you may, true submission would say, if it's not in an ungodly way, say, I trust you. Right? Tendencies, redemptive norms. Right? So I think Paul's writing into the created norms and the ways that we can err, both men and women, in that created norm. <clears throat> a few application and charges. So that's how I understand the passage, 1 Timothy 2. Um, that, that men are meant to protect and provide, to guard and to keep the church. What does that, perhaps I want to, in this application and charge, I want to give some more bones on really what that, I mean by that, uh, and what I think that can look like. The first one's to the men, and to the elders maybe specifically. If you choose to go in a complementarian direction, the men ought to be the most patient, selfless, sacrificial, and joyful men in the world, particularly your elders, that they should be willing to lose battles for the sake of the congregation. That, they should, that, that, they, that we recognize, men, that we model a crucified Christ who didn't force his own way. Right? And in some ways, I think Anthony's a model of a complementarian pastor, even if he didn't claim it. 
Because he's not coming saying, I'm egalitarian, you better get on board. He's saying, what's the best for the church? And that is an example of godly leadership that you should be thankful for, for your pastor. Because there's a lot of poor pastors out there. And I think Anthony's a good one, and you got a good one. But what are the ways, right? John 21, Peter. Jesus asking Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Tend my lambs. I think Jesus is giving him a picture. What does it mean to love in the Gospel of John? Greater love knows none than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. You want to you lead in the church, be ready to lay down your life. What's a good shepherd? Here's a good shepherd. He doesn't flee when enemies come, but he's willing to lay down his life, John 10. And so Jesus is using these imageries to restore Peter back to leadership, to say this is what it means to lead. It's to lay down your life. So men, in our marriages and in our church, we lay down our life for the sake of the flourishing of our families and of the women in our life. It's not a way to get what you want and to domineer and to lead authoritatively and to just get what you want. It's not the right to rule, but the responsibility to serve. So men, let's be the best servants that the world knows. Second, to the congregation. Give them grace. Not many should desire this role of elder. We're judged by a stricter standard, James would say. It is hard to continually do this, right? And so you may be a woman thinking, I don't want to submit. I don't like that. And I would say, I don't want to model Christ dying. I don't want to do it. But these are our God-given roles, in my opinion, that we need to walk into and to steward. But we're going to fail along the way. Right? Every, all of us will fail along the way. So give each other grace. Third and last, what we have in common in this conversation is far greater than what separates us. Our unity in Christ, the gospel of grace that unites us. It's important, right? Just like church structure is important, but it's not essential. Women, this women in ministry question is important, and it ought to be debated, and we ought to be civil with each other. The church ought to model what's it look like to disagree on a whole host of, on a host of subjects, and then we go and we share bread and wine together, and we go show hospitality in each other's homes, and we love each other, right? Our unity in Christ is far, far greater than this issue. And so... Don't let that separate us. Stay close. Love one another. Sacrifice one another. Those are my thoughts. Anthony, you're up. <clears throat> Thanks, Alex. I hope you can tell why um, I, I appreciate Alex so much. Um, his comments about our name is, are fair. Um, <clears throat> he changed it for a reason. I, it wasn't me who picked out eyesight. Just for the record, <clears throat> there was quite a few college students involved, and we just thought it was cool, and that's just all there was to it. 
What did he say? Who said what? Who said that? I am a dweeb. Yes, that's fair. I assent I, I to that. That is correct. <clears throat> yes. All right. I'm going to do this. <clears throat> I want to I start by, uh, I'm going to work backwards, uh, or the opposite of, of the way Alex did. I'm going to uh, work through the text in 1 Timothy 2 and back into other, other texts, uh, including and especially creation. So let me just read 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15. I desire then that in every place uh, that men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Um, my, my, one of the things that I'm, I'm definitely concerned with as a pastor, as the pastor of this church, as a teacher of Scripture, is uh, I, I want people to read their Bibles, and I, I don't want people to feel like, as I enter into this discussion, that you have to know all the things and all the words that I do, or else you can't read your Bible. Um, that's just simply not the case. I'm Protestant. I'm, I'm down with being Protestant. I believe in the Protestant Reformation. I like the fact that people have Bibles in their hands. Um, we should all have our Bibles open more often. Uh, and one of the principles that we as a, a Protestant Reformation people believe in is what we call the perspicuity of Scripture, the clarity of Scripture. And uh, one of the, before Alex maybe says this to me later, one of the challenges of, of my position is that it seems like the clarity of Scripture, the simplest reading of the text, makes this a very simple conversation. It says what it says, women submit to the men, don't lead, don't teach. It's very clear. However, what I, what I want us to see is that this text is not a clear text. And that is not to undermine your confidence in the text. It's to bring you into the conversation. And what you need to understand is this text is much contended. That even complementarians open this text and come to different interpretations of this text. And that in this text is contested vocabulary and concepts and situations. And so the principle is, there are, of course, some texts of Scripture that are less clear than others. So the principle, then, is to interpret less clear passages with clear passages, to use Scripture to help us interpret Scripture. And what I'm going to suggest to you is that the nature of this text invites us to use the rest of Scripture to rightly understand what it is saying. And when you hear it in that light, what I think the rest of Scripture helps us to see is that we may not hear what it seems like is simple and plain on its surface. Okay? So that's where, that's where I'm going with this. The 1 Timothy as a letter is primarily concerned uh, with false teaching. 
That would be my suggestion, and we may disagree over that. But 1 Timothy uh, looks different than other letters, and you can check me on this. Uh, a similar letter to this one in many ways would be the book of Galatians, which is also dealing with false teaching. Usually Paul greets people, identifies who he is, who they are, where they are, gives a prayer of thanksgiving, eases in to uh, theology and then application. And that is not what happens in 1 Timothy. He says, hey, what's up? Hey, stop the false teaching. False teaching is the supreme issue in 1 Timothy. Um, one uh, scholar that I was reading said that 60% of the, the passages, the content of 1 Timothy is dealing with the issue of correct teaching and or the issue of women. My suggestion to you is that it is clear, it should be clear to us if we pay attention, that there is something going on in the context of this letter in Ephesus. How do I know that? Because it says uh, in verse 3, I urge you, Timothy, when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. So they're in Ephesus. Something is going on here in regards to false teaching. How do we know? We can look at verse 20 of chapter 1, among, uh, continuing from the previous sentence, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, uh, these false teachers who have already been expelled. So he's, this is an issue. False teaching is a problem. And repeatedly when Paul goes on in chapter 3 to give explanation of what an elder and a deacon should do, he emphasizes, teach rightly. Because this is a problem. And what it seems like is that most of Paul's, uh, the false teaching that he's confronting uniquely has to do with women. Whatever is going on in Ephesus seems to focus on and predominantly affect women. Whatever this is. And I'll just say, I don't know what it is. We, we don't know what it is. Um, and and I, I can't say to you, there's, here's 3 Timothy where it tells you, this is the proof, this is what I'm saying. That's not what we're doing here. I can't do that. But here in this passage, um, Paul is dealing with this issue of false teaching, what it requires of a response of the people. Uh, I want to look at verse 12 because that's where all the attention goes. That's, that's the, the glittery one. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. And then we will talk about verse 13, this reference to Adam and Eve, because I agree with Alex that it's an important, uh, important part. Uh, the, the vocabulary here in this particular verse is entirely unique in the New Testament. We, we count words. We have enough time to do that. We have computers. We count words. This word here, having authority, is unique in the New Testament. There are uh, two other references in the Greek Bible but from the Apocrypha that use this same root word. Otherwise, in the New Testament, this is it. And has often been the case since about the 40s. This word has gotten translated in many, many translations to have, to have authority. We have uh, lexical tools that group words for us by what they do. We have uh, words, Paul has words available to him for rule and govern and have authority. Dozens and dozens of words. This word is not in any of those categories. This word means something, has a particular kind of nuance that Paul reached for on purpose. 
that it wasn't just like these other words that just meant to rule or to govern or to have authority. And that particular kind of nuance matters when we're listening to what Paul is saying and we're trying to understand is going on in this Ephesian church. And if we go and find this word outside of the Bible, what it often, almost always means is to dominate a particular kind of illegitimate grasping of power for the purpose of domination. It often gets tied up in references to murder. That's the kind of force and strength that it has. And Paul uses this word in this particular case. And I, I would suggest that this is actually at the heart of what's going on. We, we know enough about context that um, people in various parts of the Greco-Roman world, women, could uh, uh, rise to various kinds of influence, could rise to various kinds of power. We know that outside of Ephesus around this time, there's a high priestess of the God. Not, not a married priestess, just a high priestess. So women could ascend to important roles. And we know that the temptation to be like Roman culture and to, to be like other Roman cults would be to leverage that kind of power in the context of the church and potentially try to do exactly this, dominate men. It might explain then why Paul says men ought to pray. And by the way, they shouldn't be angry. But why were they angry? Because they were trying to be silenced. They were being women were rising in power in line with these kind of cults, in line of these kinds of contrary religions, and trying to push them out and force them out inappropriately. And Paul says, you should not do that. Now, it's partnered with this word, teaching. And he says, uh, I don't permit a woman to teach. And teach here means teach. That's what it means. But they're put together. And I don't really have time to go into Greek grammar nerd territory because one, everybody falls asleep, and two, I'm not that good at it. But sometimes when two words work together like this in pairs, they're meant to work together in function. So a way to read this is women are not permitted to teach in order that they dominate in power, which sounds a lot different, does it not, than to teach or have authority. Now, that's contested, that, those two words working together. I'll tell you that. But I will tell you that there's a long history of translation of this word, have authority. Like all the way up to the 1600s, and even beyond in some translations. And these old-timey translations with you know the Fs instead of Ys or however that works, they all use this language of domination. They do not use the language of have authority. The focus in the translation from the Latin Vulgate all the way forward is domination, not to just have authority. Similarly, Paul, when he is saying this, he does not say, I forbid women everywhere to teach or have authority. He has words for that. He doesn't say it. He, He doesn't say women are forbidden to. He says It's just present tense, and present tense just means I am forbidding this. Now, that doesn't mean one way or another that it absolutely only means it's particular to this case, but it's also important to note he could have said, I forbid this now and forever, and he does not. He does it other other places and about other things, 
but he does not do it here. So, if we at least consider then what this might sound like, in the context of a church that is dealing with false teaching, that is dealing with uh, contrary teaching, that is encouraging women to take up authority, to use teaching, to dominate over, what needs to happen then is exactly what Paul says. Be quiet. Stop those women from teaching. And let them submit to other teaching, the right teaching. And I actually think the, the verse that follows in verse 13 is actually an elucidation of that need, an illumination of that need, rather than a reference to how women are always in second place. I think Paul is actually providing in the story of Adam and Eve examples of what happens when women are not properly educated as to what God says. Listen to what he says. Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Almost always in the New Testament, including, I think, in all of the rest of Paul's writing, Adam and Eve, the story, is used what we call typologically. To point to the story of Adam and Eve and say, like this happened, so now then this. It is not used as a historical story, although Paul believes in the historical Adam. That's not what I'm saying. He's using it to make a point and to teach a point using their story. And what happens in the story of Adam and Eve? Eve is not properly instructed in what God has said. Adam was. Because Adam was made first. And the instruction to not eat from the tree came to Adam. And the serpent spoke to Eve. And what did Eve do? She misquoted the teaching of God. And what happened? Destruction. The fall. And so the example here is not to say women always come second, but to tell the church, look, you have the resources theologically to understand what happens here. Just like Eve, these women need to be told what should happen. When when you consider the possibility of reading this passage like this, when you consider the possibility that Paul is speaking to a particular kind of case and circumstance in the church in Ephesus, what I, what I would suggest is uh, this kind of thing frees us to consider all the rest of the biblical data. For many people, I'm not saying for you, not for all people, but for many people, the, the case for women not being elders is just about this verse. And I know many complementarians who would say, that is not the case. I understand. I'm not talking to you. You have, you have a much fuller explanation, and I appreciate that very much. There's lots of brilliant men and women who are complementarians who would not advise that. I understood. But for many people, it really is just about verses like this and a couple in 1 Corinthians. What I'd like to present to you is that you should consider the rest of the clarity of Scripture to understand this unclear passage. And when you look at the rest of Scripture, there can be a kind of clarity that may dawn for you as it did for me. And I have to say, I've not been egalitarian all my life. Okay, I'm relatively new to the club. I should have said that to begin with. I changed my mind on this. What we see in the New Testament 
is that Paul frequently mentions and points out women in specific roles of helpful ministry. He gives women like Phoebe titles like deacon. He, he will tell you that, uh, that there is instruction given to one that we call an apostle and Apollos by a man and a woman who instruct him. Women play an incredibly important role in Paul, and he calls them fellow workers in the ministry, not just contributors, but fellow workers. There's one, and I'd like to just, this is not a be-all, end-all. This is not proof positive. That's not my point. In Romans 16, there's a, uh, the mention of a woman named Junia. And I want to point this out as a way that it's important for us to continue to listen to and wrestle with Scripture, or else we can be prone uh, to read Scripture with fingers over our eyes. And I acknowledge this about myself as well. Uh, in Romans 16, this name is given for this woman named, named Junia who is well-known among the apostles. Um, for years, decades, centuries, the idea that a woman might be among, named among the apostles, which is what it says, named among the apostles, uh, just did not fit in the box that women could not do that. So therefore, this name cannot mean Junia. It's got to be a dude named Junius. The name Junius does not exist. There are no men named Junius. But that was more understandable than, than thinking that a woman would be named among the apostles. Now most people would say, yeah, it's, it's a woman's name. But my point is to point out to you that our Deeply held assumptions, if not examined, can screen the way that we read, and that is a problem. And we should all be suspicious of ourselves. Now, some of the earliest readings of that text, we'll have John Chrysostom, who says, Junia, yeah, she's a woman, she was an apostle. Now, Junia, I mean, uh, John Chrysostom, still not okay with women's ordination. So I'm not telling you this proves anything. I'm just telling you that early sources will say, that's a woman. Named among the apostles. Now, if you were like me, what's, um, what deeply troubled me as I read this is it messed with me, because it did mess with me, is that I said, look, it is whatever, what year that was, let's say 2015, for what, 1,800 years? Churches were very clear on this, and there was no disagreement Women do not hold these offices. Now, the diaconate is more historically debatable. There were pretty clearly women deacons, but priests, elders, bishops, how can I possibly say in the face of 1,500, 1,600, 1,800 years of church history, yeah, but actually now I understand better than you. That was terrifying to me. And still, I, I pray, literally pray to God that he would forgive me if I have misread and that he would convince me if I am wrong. However, what I, what I would say is if you go back and read the testimony of the way that people, usually men, often talked about women in respect to these offices, 
They are not talking the way that Alex just talked. What Alex just said is like, I'm on board with like most of that. That was, that was winsome and generous and kind. And that is not how the early church wrote about this issue. They were like, it's clear women are more easily deceived than men. And also they're tempters, so you can't let them be pastors. This is pretty clear. People, men who I love and respect as brilliant theologians come to the same uh, sort of uh, conclusion of the argument as, as Alex or other complementarians might, but the rationale was vastly different. William Witt, who's a professor at the school where I do my D-men, um, and he's the, the resource that I forgot to put on. He, he's done, he'll list lots of sources for you as men in the church talk about this. To me, that freed me. If they were struggling to read this and were blinded by their own sort of stuff and still come to a conclusion, still would definitely, I don't know, probably stone me. I don't know. I felt more free to disagree with them because they, the argument changed. What Alex is proposing, which is, again, much, I would say, much more biblically faithful and beautiful and compelling has only been around about as long as egalitarianism has. That, to me, is, is, is significant and an important point. We, we are in a community of reading as Protestants together. And, and what I hope that you hear is not that I've come to the text and said, look, it's just not fair that women don't get to be pastors. I... I I have four children. I do not care about fair. <laughs> I, I, I am opposed to fair. I really don't care. And I will, I will point to you a lot of things in Scripture that are not fair. One, Israel. That's not fair. God chose them and not everybody else. You know what? I don't feel bad about it. That's just what Scripture teaches. And I'm not coming to Scripture and saying, you know what? It's really not fair that women don't get to be pastors. That's not what I'm interested in. I can feel uncomfortable in, under the, the tutelage of Scripture, and I should because God is the authoritative, transcendent, holy, barely understandable God, and he gets to tell me when I am wrong. And, and what, I am, what I am telling you is my conviction that the biblical data opens the door to this, that when Jesus pulls women into the, the circle of his following, in a way that a lot of people were not, it meant something. That when Jesus reveals his resurrected body to women witnesses first, it means something. That when Paul will name these women as fellow workers in the gospel, it means something. And all of these things scooped up together in light of a prohibition that may not even mean what we often thought it meant, tells me this is a door that is open. Now, I am, I, I have shelves full of books from people who deeply disagree with me and are about 80 times smarter than me. And they, they, they could tell me I'm wrong and I would not even know all the languages they were telling me I'm wrong in. And I profit from their work and I benefit from their, their work and I am very grateful for their work. I am not telling you that everybody else is a dummy and I'm a genius, 
So listen to me because I've figured it out. I'm telling you, this is hard. This is difficult. And you and I should pay attention to this. And I, I think we are better off when we do this together. When we read scripture together. When you can put your eyes on things that I cannot put my eyes on. And you can speak to me in correction. Because you're speaking along with the words of God. So my, my invitation is, is to consider reading a little differently. Consider the possible. What if this text reads and sounds different than you thought? How does that open up the rest of the text that might be more clear and less contentious? I think this work is a worthwhile work for us. I hope that you look at this resource list, that you go check out some of that stuff, and we can continue to have this conversation. Now, I want to give Alex a chance to respond either to what I said or things that he thought of based off of what I said or, or anything like that, and then I'll respond to what he said. Good? That's great. <laughs> Have you ever seen Billy Madison? What? Billy Madison, have you seen that? Of course. Okay. You know when Billy Madison... <laughs> yeah, never mind. Um, thank you. I think one of the reasons, um, one of the things that first drew me to Anthony was that we read, we enjoyed similar authors. So I think the first time he spoke in chapel at Montreat, he quoted Jamie Smith, and then I came to hear him preach at Valley Hope, and he quoted Elizabeth Wilkerson, The Warmth of Other Sons, and then I found out, like, Alan Jacobs, and, like, all of those are, like, up my alley. Uh, and so one of the books that uh, I think we both like is called How to Think. And Alan Jacobs argues it's less about um, being like-minded and more about being like-hearted when we're trying to think about difficult things. So he gives the example of like, there's plenty of complementarians that like I wouldn't want to be at a dinner party at with that, you know, like I just, no thank you. Um, but what, when we were trying to arrive at good, kind of get better perspectives on the truth, what matters most is that we're kind and gracious and generous with one another. And so I, I, hope, I hope we can do that, and I think that's what's going to happen. But I'm just so grateful to be part of this thinking community because I think we'll think better together. Um, a few just responses to uh, Anthony and uh, perhaps questions for you to answer. Um, I would... I would uh, disagree that First Timothy is about false teaching, though I think it's some of it. I think it's more about church order, right? So I think this is a book, two pastors talking about church order, not even necessarily the church, right? Now it's to the church and we're reading it that, in that way, but I think first it was to pastors. And so when he talks about, uh, at the beginning of chapter two, first of all, I urge you that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people. Um, it, I think he's talking about what, how should the church order go? And I think this gets back to the liturgical argument um, just quickly, is that the help that Adam needed was not necessarily a help to tend and to keep the garden, but to worship. That he needed a helper to adequately worship God and that there needed to be a response, kind of a liturgical response, and that that was um, the beautifying work of women to do, right? So if you even think about, I don't know much about music, but I've heard music, men usually have the lower notes, which kind of carries the tune, but then the higher 
voices, usually women, beautify the tomb. They make it beautiful, right? And I think in the same way, that's what's going on here liturgically, that, that men are kind of leading the prayers, and then the, the church, the congregation, women in the congregation are beautifying it, are responding to it. And so I think this passage, 8 through 15, is, is kind of a call. How should the call and response go in some ways? Second thing, on the use of authority. I don't think it's the most helpful. I think using outside, how this word is used outside isn't the most helpful way at times. It, it, it could perhaps bring distortions to how we read the biblical text and what Paul is meaning. Sometimes it can provide an undergirding or kind of give us more clarity, but sometimes not. Um, and I think the, the main issue then that I would have with that <coughs> is that it says, a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. So I don't think it's just women teaching. It's this, it's this issue of why is this word over a man there? Because if it was just there's false teaching, women should learn. Th- that phrase, over a man, I, I don't understand why that would be there. And so the authority that I think is, that Paul is referring to is the official, authoritative, appointed, ruling authority that a church would give its leaders. Right? That that's the thing that a woman should not have authority in. To Anthony's, maybe towards the end point, are there helpful women in the early church? Absolutely. And should there be more helpful women in today's church that are equipped and discipled and trained and given authority in some context to teach and to minister? Absolutely. Because I think something, one of the, resource things, Tish Harrison Warren's argue like when, when there's no authority for women, what we get is like popular bloggers and authors who say unbiblical things, but there's no authority over them authorizing. And so we have a bunch, a bunch of confused theology for women rather than solid, doctrinally sound things. And so absolutely, should there be an authoritative role for women given by the church to women? I think absolutely, but it's just not the elder and authoritative leading role is what I would argue. Um, So yes, absolutely, we need women. One objection that you may give me or that you may give me, um, does this mean that women are incapable or otherwise not gifted in teaching and leadership? I'd say absolutely not, right? That women are, are, and even at times, are more gifted than men or more gifted than a husband at leading and teaching, right? But that's not the point. Right? The point is not your giftedness or capability. Right? You can, I mean, there's tons of ways that women are more gifted than men. Right? Like, I'll let your mind wander there, like tons of ways. Right? Um, but it's just this appointed role in the church and in the home that there's, there's structures around, there's limits around. And I think when we, more and more as we accept the limits that God has for our flourishing, then we, we can really flourish. When we don't war against it, but we say, okay, God, I, I trust you. Uh, I, 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 I trust that this is right and this is good, and I, I want to flourish within your limits. Right? I think that can go to kind of Wendell Berry local limits and being rooted in a place, um, but also in kind of biblical terms as well. So a few things. Anything else that I should say? Do you want me to give my strongest point, or do you want me to do that later? Okay. I think the strongest argument for egalitarianism um, that made me seriously question this um, is the practical nature of women needing to be discipled and needing 
confidential, authoritative people to go to. Because I know, like, if a woman struggles with a miscarriage or has sexual problems in the home or whatever it is, to come to a pastor to talk about that is uncomfortable, awkward, not the best situation, right? So the, the idea of, of a woman being there as a spiritual director, as a spiritual advisor, as a discipler, like that's where I think women, our churches need to hire more women. Our churches need to, to train and, and hire more women, just not in this eldering leadership exercising authority role, but, but absolutely, like I think your next hire ought to be a woman. Um, there, there ought to be a care for the women uh, here uh, and in our churches, which has gone sorely neglected, I think. Okay, um, so I hope you heard the, the distinction of what uh, these, these fundamental different understandings of what the book is about, First Timothy, that, that matters, right? That kind of shapes how you think about, about these things. Um, and we just disagree. Uh, I, I just don't think, uh, um, I've not heard from Alex or read an argument that convinces me this book is primarily about uh, church order. I don't think it's arranged that way, and I don't think it reflects other books that would more clearly tell us that. that that's fine. Um, it also explains why we disagree about some things. Um, the, the comment that uh, the, this word, what it means, authority, have authority over you, and, and believing that it refers to officially appointed uh, authority. Again, I, I think we just disagree there because I think Paul has words for that and he uses them elsewhere and doesn't use it here. And to me, that even if we don't want to go outside of the New Testament and try to understand this word that is only once in the New Testament, I just don't think uh, that we have enough sort of comparative data to say he probably just means officially uh, appointed uh, authority. Um, so that, that's just a, a disagreement that we have. Um, I, one thing that I really like generally about uh, really faithful, thoughtful complementarians like Alex and others is this very thick uh, understanding of the importance of creation and the creation order and everything that means for us going forward and, and how deeply devastating the fall is. Um, and so these, these categories of what men and women were called to do, I think, unfortunately, a lot of women, uh, not women, egalitarians who are arguing for women's ordination tend to to talk in terms of, yeah, but men and women are equal, um, and just sort of brush past and make it sound like we, we, I don't think there's any difference between men and women. Uh, I do. I, I do think men and women are very different. Um, I, I think sometimes those categorizations are un, unhelpful, like in my marriage. My wife is the carpenter and fixes everything, and, well, I don't even know what I contribute, but I'm just less <laughs> than her. Um, and, and yet I don't feel, and she's never made me feel like I'm less than a man because I don't fit into those stereotypes. However, I'm, I'm saying those broad generalizations, they do exist, and men and women are different. That's kind of fundamentally why I feel a bit strong about having women in leadership because they're different than men, and I want them to help us pastor and lead the church. Um, that's, that's sort of a, a feature, uh, not a flaw. 
I want the difference. So I, I appreciate how Alex articulates that. In terms of, of specifically guarding and protecting, and I, I think, did you say is a priestly vocation? I think you mean that, but you didn't say that, right? Guarding and protecting would be a priestly vocation. Um, I'm not trying to box you in and make you say something you don't mean. Uh, I was just thought as an Anglican, that's what you would mean. Um, and I think Al, Alistair Roberts, Peter Lightheart, that's kind of where you're coming from there. Okay. Um, so sort of that function of guarding and, and protecting. Um, my, I guess my question is, is in the, the declaration of the priesthood of all believers, which, which is clear in Scripture, that all of God's people are made priests uh, in the kingdom, um, and I understand there could be distinctions between, uh, that could be a declaration of how the people function in the world versus the priest in, in the church. I, I understand that. Um, but isn't it possible uh, that, that women could also serve that role to guard and protect? Um, and, and so we're, we're talking about sort of typological distinctions, but I, I, I do think just anecdotally it'll be helpful to ask the question, have you ever seen a mother guard and protect? Do you, do you want to deal with that? I do not. Um, I think women can also guard and protect. And um, I know there is some difference between what I, that I'm saying and, and, and what he's saying. So I'm not trying to just wipe out his point. I guess the gentle pushback would be, can't that some of that function also be given to women? Um, and then uh, finally, um, I guess I, I sort of challenge to just complementarians generally, uh, especially in regards to this passage, is the emphasis is almost often just read what the words say and take them on board, and you should just do that, which I generally agree with. But this passage is particularly gnarly, because if, if you just say that, then you, you can end up saying some weird things, uh, namely that women appear because they're ordered second and they're deceived, therefore women are just easy, more easily deceived. Um, uh, also, she will be saved through childbearing. That's weird, right? I mean, I, I, I was pretty sure it was about Jesus saving his people. Um, if you just leave on its face, uh, women should not teach a man. It doesn't say only in the church. It says women should not teach men, period, full stop. That is what it says, just the words. That's what they say. So... If you're going to just take the words on their face, how do you justify women teaching in a college? And I understand this is a letter to a church, and you're reading the context. That's good interpretation. I support that. But the words themselves don't say that. And so I think we have to acknowledge altogether that uh, interpretations happens for all of us. We can't just say, well, but mine is what it actually says. No, we're all interpreting. If the, the, the thing that we're doing is checking the math that we're all engaged in. Does that make sense? I think in terms of strongest, um, I'm going I'm to say a weak point for myself and a strong point for you. Um, I would say a, a, a real uh, weakness in uh, egalitarianism, as I've experienced amongst other people, there is a real danger, a live danger, that we are conforming to the culture. You, you have to consider that. It, it's just true that we live in a time where it's more easy and comfortable to have this position. And you have to examine 
am I coming to this position because of that, or am I coming because of the teaching of Scripture? That is a challenge, and you should acknowledge it. You shouldn't run from it and pretend it's not there. It is there, of course. Now, complementarians, guess what was the most culturally acceptable position for about 1,900 years? Complementarianism. So you should also be deeply suspicious of where that position comes from as well. See how this goes for both of us. We have to be suspicious of ourselves. It's a running theme. Um, I would say a strength of complementarianism is this commitment, um, especially complementarians today, a real commitment to saying God has formed us into, made us to be a countercultural people. And we, we are not afraid to be different than the culture. And that is a requirement for all Christians everywhere. And I see complementarians taking that up seriously and earnestly and knowing that you are absolutely being ridiculed by our culture. I so respect that. Uh, and I see that all the complementarians I know are not committed to that because they hate women or think women are dumb. It's because they really earnestly respect the authority of Scripture and just say, I'm trying to be faithful in obedience. And also, it speaks a really thick understanding of what it means to be gendered, to be human. I really respect that, honestly. Um, and I think there, even, even though I am not complementarian, I want to sort of lean into that and borrow from it significantly. I, I think that's a real virtue. And I'm not standing up here saying, I don't want to be anything like Alex or any other complementarian. I'm saying, I want to be like them in the ways that I think are right. And there, there are many and significant and important. So, um, yeah, I hope, I hope that makes sense. Um, I hope that you see that we respect one another, consider each other's ideas seriously, and uh, still like each other, for the most part. That's fair enough. Um, I forgot to, I did want to uh, show you this book. It's listed on here, but I just want to show you what it looks like. Zondervan has these counterpoints books series. I'd really recommend these to you. It's two views on women's in, women in ministry. It's great because the scholars talk to one another. It's not fun reading. It's not light reading, but it's good. It's really good stuff. It, it, it's people saying, I hear what you're saying. This is good. I don't agree with this. It's great, um, and it, it, it fairly represents both views, I would say. Um, and then also, I forgot to write on here, put on here, Will, I mentioned Will Witt. Um, he has a, he's a systematics theology professor at Trinity School for Ministry. He's got this long series of blog posts which are helpfully organized. You can just read a little bit at a time. So I'm just going to tell you the web address. You can write it down whether you want it or not. Will G. Witt, W-I-T-T, dot org slash a guide to my essays about women's ordination. Uh, and there's a hyphen between every one of those words. Okay? Will Witt, women's ordination. Okay, yeah, you can Google. Google will help you get there. It's really good. I recommend it. You can check it out. Um, he's an interesting thinker and uh, deals with actually some of the liturgical arguments that I think Alex was hinting at as well. So we're going to take a break. We're going to collect your questions. We're going to get at them. We, we won't get it to all of them probably, but we'll do our very best. And um, if you have to leave, that's fine. Um, and if you're listening along at home, you can get up and go to the bathroom. 
Let me, let me pray for us to just close out in case anyone needs to leave. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for your faithfulness to your church. Um, so despite my failings to understand correctly, or Alex's or any of ours about any matter, our, the fate of the church is in your hands. And in your hands, the fate of the church is secure. We are so thankful, Lord Jesus. Bind us together in you. Renew us and purify us by your Holy Spirit. To the praise of your name, amen. You're not in and have a seat. Okay, there's a lot of questions. We cannot do them all. Um, I tried to sort of separate different kinds of questions and try to get some of all of them. Um, we're still not going to get all of them. Um, but we're not saying we will never answer these questions. We just can't answer them right here. So I'm going to keep these. We will figure out a way that if you wanted to, um, we could hear the answers. And how are we going to do that? I don't know. I didn't expect this many questions, so we have to figure that out. So they're right here. Um, you can catch me afterwards if you really want an answer to yours, um, and we'll hash that out. Um, Alex had several actually directed straight to him, so I wanted to let him. I picked a couple of those and just wanted to let him answer those. You just take one. I can, I mean, I can do whatever. Don't. I mean, pick the hardest one. Okay. I think this is. I, yeah, I'll answer this one. So this is. If in this verse, Paul is directly communicating to women generally and not specifically to women in this church of Ephesus. What does the last verse of this passage regarding childbearing and sobriety correlate with eldership rules? And then same question for you, Anthony. Um, so yeah, I think the one thing I didn't talk about was the childbearing piece of it. Um, because like, okay, are single women not saved? Are barren women not saved? And I think the testimony of scripture would go against those things. But I think it's a, a living into your vocation, right? A living into, you may not bear children, but what's your nurturing role, your life-giving role in the church, right? So whether that's discipleship of the youth or discipleship of other women or just kind of that nurturing role and care for the church, that doesn't save you, but it, it, it's kind of the sanctifying living into your vocation is how I would, I would answer that. Can you tell me what I'm supposed to answer? The same question, except with regards to a specific situation. Oh, so if maybe if that's not about, if it is about women, if it's not about women leading, then how does that how does that relate to leadership? Maybe childbearing. Oh, <laughs> outed. <laughs> Yeah. Do you think that uh, he is communicating directly to a specific situation mm-hmm. in Ephesus mm-hmm. um, regarding this issue about Roman? Oh, yeah. How does that last? Oh, what's the deal with the childbearing thing? Oh, I didn't speak to the childbearing thing. Yes. Good question. Yeah, sorry, I meant to get to that. So uh, my, my reading, my understanding would be this, this is a particular kind of false teaching that is uh, directly influencing women. And... It, there are other like other parts of the letter are telling people Paul telling people like you you should get married or you know don't um, what it seems like is um, trying to live a sort of 
sexually free life without ties to, to family and what, what Christians understand is, you know, part of the calling of sex is to be in marriage and to have household and, and all that stuff. And so, like, maybe they were being told, don't have children, don't get married, something like that. Does that make sense? And so he's actually saying, no, actually, this is, this is good for you. You should, you'll be prevented from the dangers of this heresy. Have children. You're not, like, salvifically, you know, saved. because. And Alex doesn't think that either. Also, I don't know. Yeah. It's weird. <laughs> I'm not, not claiming. Everybody kind of just generally agrees it's weird. Um, okay. Um, some of these are just questions that I can try to answer uh, quickly. The establishment of both the PCA and the EPC is founded in the withdrawal from the PCUSA. Yes, PCA does not sanction female ordination. What thoughts or motives in the establishment of the EPC permitted uh, females previously ordained in the PCUSA to maintain their ordination in the EPC. Therefore, was the open policy of the P EPC established to accommodate these women? No. Um, the people, PCA left first, um, and the people who didn't go with them didn't go with them on purpose. And when uh, the, the folks who eventually formed the EPC um, left the PCUSA, it was over, I mean, heterodoxy at best, um, devolution into some other thing. And so they, they, were, they were never saying it's the issue of women's leadership and eldership uh, that is uh, at issue for us. Uh, we are united around the centrality of the gospel, we're, you know, bound by Presbyterian polity, evangelical and ethos. Therefore, um, those of us who have those commitments um, vary on this position. So yes, those women can keep the ordination, but also we just want to keep this as a question for the individual church. Uh, a lot of our book of order is focused on this particular concern that the denomination cannot come in and make you do anything. That's They want to push back against that all the time. And so that was really the question. We, they were basically like, you can't tell us what to do. If we don't want to have women elders, you can't make us do it. If we do want to have women elders, you can't tell us not to. And so you, I don't know if that's always the best rationale, but that's, that's part of what it was. I would say it's balanced by that commitment to things that we're for. Uh, okay, that's over there. Um, I, um, I asked the elders to be up here and to be f free to answer questions as well. So I'm going to let you guys... One of you guys answered this. Um, how would the how would the complementarian session respond to a junior high girl who informs them she was called to be a pastor at summer camp and is asking them for next steps in her spiritual growth? I'll jump on that grenade. <laughs> <laughs> so I th I think I would um, agree with Alex where in a situation like this instead of saying. Well, you have a you're miscalled, or this is something that you obviously misunderstand. <clears throat> Affirming that person's call, that that girl's call to be in ministry, and gently over time explaining to her, if it was our point of view or my point of view, I'm a complementarian. Hi, um, <laughs> that it is something that I see scripturally. Uh, I see a lot of scriptural evidence against what she thinks she is called to. And just lead with scripture, uh, again, affirming the, the fact that this person wants to be in a church, that she wants to be in ministry. Those are great things. Um, but then 
kind of correcting gently uh, her reading of scripture. But you, there's some realms of ministry that you would say. Okay. Correct. Oh, there's yeah, yeah. And that's, that kind of comes with saying, we're really glad you're interested in ministry and we want you to join in the mission of the church. One of the problems with our church, and this is for men and for women, is we don't have a lot of opportunities for ministry, period, outside of elder, deacon, pastor. And we're working on that. And so it's hard. And so specific to our church, we, we are moving towards creating more opportunities, whether it's Sunday school or, or different areas within women's ministry uh, to, to point people to. Uh, but now that's, that's a kind of a, a big issue for us, that we don't have those outlets to push people to. But. I'll add one quick thing. Um, I'm David, if you don't know me, uh, Hauser. And my wife and I, we talk about this because we have girls. Um, and my thought is, uh, and my wife's too, um, like Alex said, there's, there's areas where women can minister to people, not only to men. I mean, I've had plenty of women minister to me, for sure, in my life. Um, and, but there's avenues to do that in a specific professional type of atmosphere, whether it's a, church, a spiritual director like Alex mentioned, or just in different areas where you have a woman who's ministering to women. Because let's face it, I can't minister to a woman in some ways, in some capacity, and neither can Anthony. So um, a woman may not feel comfortable coming to a man with a specific thing, just like a man may not become comfortable going to a woman. So I think there's definitely that opportunity for women to minister to other women, uh, men to minister to other men. I don't fully understand. I'm a complementarian. That's the way I believe. But uh, I don't fully understand it. I don't fully agree with it because it is easier to say, I'm okay with women. But that's, to me, I'm not comfortable with it. Um, and it's not easy, but that's what I believe because I tr that's the way I interpret scripture. I mean, and that's what my conviction is. And that may get changed, and I may be wrong, but that's how I would tell my child or my daughter. There's just areas. May I make a quick comment? So, um, yeah, yeah, you do, yeah. So, hi, I'm Daniel. I'm a complementarian. Anyone who's ever been to an AA meeting knows how this starts. Um, so, I, I, I would, yeah. Um, I would say in that specific case of a very young person who is, what, six, 16? Younger. Uh, younger than 16. I, and I'm not exactly disagreeing with my brothers, but I wouldn't even go there on the church issue at that age. I, I would say, that's awesome. I hope you grow into who you're going to be. I might, um, I might direct her to the diversity of thought that's available in, in God's church. Um, I would probably do that before I went to a, and you're wrong about that. And, and I didn't get the sense that you guys would, would go there immediately and crush her, her, her calling. But, but I, I, would, I would probably say, yeah, you know, you, you, might, you might find some differences of opinion about how you're going to minister. Keep your mind open. You've got a lot of options. Um, Jess, uh, what, what would I do? I'm not a complimentarian. Uh, what people took the tack with me, they said, if you can do anything else, do it. <laughs> only, only do this if this is the only thing that God will let you do because of the cost on your life. Otherwise, I'd obviously celebrate her feeling called. That's awesome. But then I'd probably later have that talk like, you should really <laughs> make sure you're sure. Um, 
Okay, to Anthony, as an egalitarian, do you see any difference between women's participation as ruling and teaching elders? No, um, I don't. I'm cool with both. Um, and it should be noted that that's actually a distinction that some complementarians make. Some would say, I'm fine with a woman as a ruling elder. I don't think they should be a senior pastor. There's kind of diversity in perspective there. I, I have no problem with either one, you know, as long as they're gifted, trained, and called uh, and under authority. Yeah, just like for, for a man. Um, I'm going to actually treat these two questions together. The first one is, what are various rationale, uh, egalitarian or complementarian, for why Jesus didn't have a woman among the 12 disciples? Very good question. Uh, considering the history of God's selection of men, such as Adam, Moses, Jacob, David, priests, prophets, apostles, scripture writers, elders, etc., for leadership positions for the past 10 millennium plus, is it safe or appropriate to say that it is that it is God's mind to maintain this pattern of male leadership in such positions. Um, so I, I think that I would, uh, for one, both of those things are good questions and strong arguments for complementarianism. Um, uh, the 12 disciples one, for me, uh, if you, if you want to cut it that way and say his calls 12 men, therefore leaders should always be men, you need to be able to come up with a compelling explanation for why they're all Jewish. If you believe in Gentile leadership, then you need to be able to explain that if you're going to use that same rationale to say women cannot be leaders. That's, that's important. Um, now, I do think there's, that means something. I do think Jesus is very specifically embodying and instituting a new covenant. And in the old covenant, there were 12 tribes of Israel who were headed by 12 men that had names. And Jesus is doing something new, and he's creating uh, his own thing. And, but then we see that he also, the door gets opened to more than just the people of Israel. Um, but he doesn't address that in the selection of the apostles. And I would also say that um, these 12 apostles are treated differently than other people who become called apostles. Other people become called apostles who are not these 12 men. Um, and again, we mentioned possibly of who one of those people were, obviously all lots of men. And then, of course, the Old Testament is full of mostly men, right? Um, I think, um, you know, it is important to note um, that there are women who occupy some of these roles in the Old Testament. Um, and I don't think that just pointing to Deborah in the book of Judges says, boom, case closed, this proves it. Um, but Deborah's important. She, she was a judge. She had authority, real judicial authority, leadership authority. She had prophetic authority. And she's not the only prophet, uh, prophetess. The, uh, Holda was a prophet. Um, and sometimes people like to say, well, Deborah, that was a bad time in Israel. Judges are generally awful. Um, Huldah is a prophet in the time of Josiah. Things are pretty good in the time of Josiah, and she's a prophet in his court. Um, and there's other unnamed prophetesses. Um, I think it's kind of remarkable that those women are named, and there's no like, now, wait a second, let me explain this to you. Why were they just mentioned without any explanation as if this was relatively normal? I don't know. Um, but we do at least have Old Testament data that women served in these important uh, I think the, the challenge, more of a challenge, is the priest question. Because um, the question is, do, do elders in the New Testament correlate to, to a priesthood? And I think there's a pretty strong argument there. And there were no female priests. There were none. Um, the other things that are in this question don't bother me at all. Um, because there are important women. 
Um, and, and, and it's, it's a challenge. I, I, but I, I would say things seem to change in the New Testament. Uh, so uh, is it safe or appropriate to say that it is God's mind to maintain this pattern of male leadership in such positions? Maybe, maybe. But I've explained why I don't think it's a definite yes either. Because um, the priesthood starts to get redefined. Um, the priesthood explicitly gets redefinition and open to all people. There's explicitly um, giftings and roles that are laid out for the church, given by the Holy Spirit. These offices and gifts are all listed without any qualification as being designated for men. In the Old Testament, they are. In the Old Testament, they say these are for men. In the New Testament, they do not say that. I don't know, I don't know that means everything, but it means something, and you got to talk about it. So that's my short answer for that. Did somebody want to talk about? I think a complementarian would say God, He chose twelve men because they're supposed to be men, right? Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, I think he's a, in the liturgical argument, yeah. His image. You've got to image the priest. Yeah. So everybody hear that. That Jesus's maleness is not incidental; it's intentional and important, and therefore, so is the maleness of his. I think that would be the complementarian argument. You satisfied with that? Okay, uh, this is an easy one. Percentage of EPC churches that are complementarian versus egalitarian. I don't know what the percentages. It's mostly egalitarian. That's what I can tell you. There are there's one presbytery. Is it one South Central? They still not ordain women. Uh, teaching elders. There's one presbytery out of all of them that does not ordain teaching elders. Our presbytery only started ordaining teaching elders since I've been pastor. I was there. I was there at that meeting. Twelve? Yeah. So we're, we're, our presbytery is uh, later to that party in terms of teaching elders, not ruling elders. Uh, why now? Are the elements of past and current cultural events having influence on desires for female ordination? Could this subject be driven by other forces than biblical precedent? Uh, the latter question, yes, of course, definitely could. I, I mentioned that before. Um, why now? I don't know. Um, why? I don't also don't, can't explain to you why uh, slavery took so long for the church to officially and consistently condemn. They're not the same thing. I'm not, saying they're not, I'm not saying they're both slavery. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying these things, I don't know why, time. Um, but sometimes things take time, even inside the church. Since God and society have used women to fulfill profound opportunities of ministry in the home, church, and society, is it sufficiently satisfying for women to continue to do so without seeking an official position of leadership in the church? Um, I am not qualified because I am a man and not a woman. Um, I can tell you what I have experienced. For some women, um, they're in, I would say, healthy, complementarian church dynamics where they are given areas of influence, who they use all their giftings, and they are happy, and they don't feel like they need to be elders or pastors. Um, I, Jen Wilkin is one. She's on your list. She's great. I love her. Um, and then some women are saying, no, I'm called to the office. It's not, I don't just want influence generally. I'm called to the office, to shepherd people, to care for people, to teach in the office. So you can't feel fully satisfied in that until you 
step into the call. So some women will say, yes, they're fine, they don't need that, and some women will not. I'm going to, this is the last kind of like pastoral question. Look, there's still a bunch here, and I'm again sorry that I'm not getting to all of them. We've had non-elders preach at Valley Hope. Do the elders who do not believe that women qualify as elders have a problem with a woman preaching under the authority of the session? If not, why do we allow women to teach in other areas to both men and women? And I read this one uh, because, one, it's a fair question, and you have every right to ask it. And I would point to this question as saying, this is a question that's, People are figuring out what they think on this. And I'm not, I'm not prohibiting them from speaking. I'm just saying I've watched it. I'm sort of the constant on the session. I'm always on the session. I've watched the composition of the session change. And I've watched the people on the session try to come to grips with how they feel about this. Um, so in the past, uh, you know, people felt differently than they feel now. I don't know where everybody is on this in flux now or what they think. Some people know what they think and some people don't. And I'm, I don't want to put you on the spot and make you say right now what you think. If you'd like to say, feel free. I want to read the question out loud because I want you to know we're not afraid of the question and we're happy to, to talk about it um, and, and say more about that. Did you want anyone want to say? I can speak to that. Can you read the question again? Yeah. Uh, so non-elder, non-elders have preached at Valley Hope. Um, basically, can, can a woman preach if she's not an elder and she's under the authority of the session? Um, if not, why do we allow women to teach in other areas to both men and women, like a Sunday school class? Yeah, this is a, this is a tricky question. Um, for me, it's, and I only speak for myself because I really don't know where these guys stand on this issue. We don't talk about this one a ton. Um, the, the passage that we just spent a lot of time looking at, 1 Timothy 2.12, has the most weight in my mind as regards to this. Uh, I think there, there isn't a more um, descriptive version of teaching and exercising authority than preaching because in the act of expositing the word and then giving people instructions on how to live, I think, I think that's what that is. That's being carried out in that. Um, but there's, it's, it's a hard issue because if you look at, you know, First Corinthians is a wonderfully difficult book. Uh, and I encourage you guys to go read, you know, First Corinthians 11 or First Corinthians 14. There is not a passage in scripture um, that definitively says women shouldn't preach sermons. Um, but there is this categorizing of ways women can teach or, or speak or communicate within the church assembly. Uh, for instance, you know, in 1 Corinthians 11, it talks about women must cover their head while they're prophesying, where they're praying and prophesying. Let's not get into the, the former of what I just said. But the, the latter indicates that they were praying and prophesying. Um, and, and then in in 1 Corinthians 14, um, it's, it's a, I encourage you guys to go read those chapters and really wrestle with them. But there's, in the same book, when it says this is something, Paul says, I'm saying this so that you know how to, to carry this out, all the saints. He makes it a, like a broad injunction to all the churches. And then he follows that by saying, I, I want women, and this is not an easy passage to say, but I, I do not permit women to speak in church. I don't have my Bible, it's over there. But remain quiet. Is that the verse? 
Um, and so we know that there's a difference there because they are prophesying and praying and not teaching. I tend to think that the, the, the sermon, the preaching of the word, uh, that level of teaching is the distinction there. I don't know if that was clear. Does that make sense to you guys? But to me, it's, there's different echelons of, of what Paul and what others are talking about in, in the New Testament. Um, and I think sermon falls under the, the prohibitive side of what women can do. I'll make a quick comment. I, I'm not like necessarily disagreeing with Andrew. I, I tend to have a little more broad, and I'm probably being really sloppy here and, and can be like destroyed like afterwards. But I, I tend to have, because I don't know Greek, you know, but I, I tend to have a pretty broad view of what preaching means. Um, I, I think the animals preach. I think the mountains preach, and yeah, I'm just going off the deep end into New Age ideology. But you know, I I, I really kind of have a lot of confidence that if a person is is speaking from the Word, that they're preaching, whether that's in a pulpit or in a in a pub or or you know, I I don't really like locking down on. But are you standing behind a pulpit in a church building? I I don't see that hard line that that you do um, I don't I, I probably need to really be educated about the meaning of the words so I, I have I guess the short answer is I'm less uncomfortable with having a woman preaching there because I'm I think we all preach and I think we all preach pretty much everywhere we go I hope we do so I, I realize that's really sloppy well no what it at least speaks to I think I can say, comfortably is there more there's more openness amongst these guys here to that question it's a live question for for them more than the office of elder would be for the more sort of codified complementarians because that this is something just you can look it up complementarians disagree about this amongst themselves if this is allowed so there's diversity within the camp on, on that issue so i think there might be diversity within the camp on this one um you can please it won't be to that topic, but I figure I should say something as well. Um, my name is Jason. Um, I do believe well, uh, women can be elders. Um, two things with this church, though, that aren't specific to women as elders, but we as a body. Uh, I grew up in the church, um, and both my parents are elders. But the biggest thing with the session in the church growing up is it was focused on committees and getting things done. And where, while that's an important part of the role of elder, um, one thing that is beautiful about this church is the fact that that's not the focus. And one thing that I'm in incredibly privileged to be on this uh, session and be a part of this church is, that, is the focus on shepherding. And while we fail at that in so many ways, um, that is a focus. And we're growing in how we shepherd and the ways we can shepherd, but it's a focus. Each, people, each person up here has a group of people that are in this room, in this church, that they're to shepherd. Again, we fail at it, but we're, we're called to do that, and that is the focus of this session. Um, and I'm thankful for that. I do think we as a church, and I've been a part of the church for a long time, I do think we failed, and, and are, as Andrew said, um, to grow leaders. Um, one of the beautiful things I thought Alex said was, it doesn't matter what side we sit on, uh, we're called to, uh, to teach, to equip, um, to train, and then to give authority to our, to our people. And um, I think we as a body have a, a, a 
incredible amount of um, space to grow in that way. And so being blessed to be on the nomination committee a couple times, um, the, there's incredible names that are being brought up, men and women, for the roles of deacon uh, and elder. And some of them aren't ready. Um, but that doesn't mean that we don't have the responsibility to train them up. And so I do know that that's something that we as a session believe in deeply and, and know we need to grow in and want to, that no matter where this church falls, one side or the other, that we are called to, to grow our leaders better. Um, and I'm thankful for that. Okay, I'm just going to do one last one because I just saw it and I just really want to answer it. But part of it is um, for Alex. Alex, how would you respond to those who would say your view does not feel Christ-like? For the right, he said, "Get over it." That was that. What you said? <laughs> um, I I would say um, that by the example of Christ, it is it is the very imaging of God, right? I think from our created roles in gender, that one is kind of this sacrificial, like again, like marriage, right? This mystery is profound. Ephesians 5, but I say that it refers to Christ in the church, right? The marriage mystery is about Christ in the church. So if we're taking, you don't have to do this, but if you take the household codes and the church is a household, then male leadership should be the ones that are like Christ, sacrificing, laying down our lives, washing them with the water of the word, right? Nourishing, all of these things. And then um, wives see Christ's sacrificial leadership and the church says, of course I'll follow Christ. Of course I'll follow a leader like that. Right? So I don't think it's Again, if, if the question, is, I don't think there's anything to be afraid of in complementarian, in true Christ-centered complementarianism, but I think all of us have seen the abuse, and so I'm scared of it, we're scared of it, and that's an okay fear, but, but if you're talking about these guys, right, do you know these guys, do you think they would be domineering, pushing their own way, or are they Christ-centered, sacrificial, selfless leaders? And if they are, then, then go and follow, and if they're not, maybe nominate somebody else, I don't know. <laughs> Uh, my part of the question was, Anthony, Eve's response to the serpent in Genesis 3-2 does not sound like she was unprepared. Please expand on your explanation. I just wanted to answer this because I teach Old Testament survey, and I love this. Um, in Genesis 2, uh, 16, God is saying to Adam, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat from that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. In Genesis 3, the serpent says to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Did God say that they weren't allowed to touch it? He did not say that. She added those words in. And not only did she add those words, it was an intensification and elevation of the prohibition. It made God seem less generous. So she did not properly quote the instruction of God. She was ill-prepared for the question. And then chaos. What? Say again. Yeah, and Adam was there, silent. Yeah, he, she, she, she didn't have to go find Adam. He was right there. He just turned and gave her the, whatever the fruit was. Did you hear that? He was saying the serpent went around the created order to go to the woman and not the one who had the information. Yeah, yeah. That's a whole other thing. 
I'd love to talk about that, but I don't want to take any more time because uh, there's definitely things to be said about that. Um, okay. Um, I would love us to come to the table together because we're made one people in Christ. And then um, I, we need to talk to people who come to Valley Hope or who are committed to Valley Hope. There's a very Valley Hope-specific piece of talking that we need to do. Um, so I want, since there's more than just Valley Hope people here, I want to have communion together. Um, and then if you could, if you're not regularly attending Valley Hope or not a member of Valley Hope, um, if you could just step out and give us a few minutes, I'd appreciate that. Um, this is the, the table that the Lord has prepared for his people by his own life, death, and resurrection